You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. My name is Christian Wilder, and I'm the student pastor here at Gateway Franklin Church. And today we're going to be speaking on hope, a hope in the midst of trial. It was April 18th, 1944, when Magda Herzberger was laying on her third floor apartment, wondering the trajectory of her life. The World War II was raging around her, and, and as an 18-year-old, she was curious and, and a little anxious about how it would affect her life, but what she didn't know was that April 18th, her life was going to be turned upside down. About, about midday, as she was laying there by herself, she heard the stomping of boots and the pounding on the door as the Nazi regime, the Gestapo soldiers came to round up the Jews and the Jew sympathizers. They grabbed Magda by the arm, threw her down on the ground, taking her outside, rounding them up like cattle to be shipped off to a death concentration camp. Her job, her responsibility at this camp was to, to gather up the dead corpses, the mutilated, malnourished bodies to be sent away to the chamber, to be burned like they didn't matter at all. And once she got done with her responsibility, she headed back to the chambers where she would sleep, a room meant for six to eight people. But in that room, there was 60, 70 80 people laying on top of one another, defecating on themselves. Imagine the smell. Imagine the potent stench of being in that room. Imagine looking around and seeing a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old wondering if they'd ever see their family again, wondering if they'd live to see the next day. In that same room, imagine there being an 80-year-old woman not having the strength to clench their fist. A year passed and the war ended and Magda Herzberger, this 18-year-old, lived through that death concentration camp and then she began touring the world speaking about the horrific terror that she encountered. And what she spoke upon that got her through was that of hope, a hope that is found in God. And today we're going to be looking at hope through the lens of Acts 26. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 26. Charlie, our lead pastor, is is out this week, and he uh, tasked me with with doing a soft opening to his hope in empty places. I'm not going to be speaking on his book. I'm going to leave that to him. But today, we're going to look at the hope that Paul found in the midst of his trial. To start out this morning, I want to give us a working definition A working definition of hope. So hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised. And its strength is in his faithfulness. So a confident expectation of what God has promised. What has he promised and how have we seen him living that out and having a hope that he will continue to do so. And in Acts 26, Paul finds himself in this situation of being on trial for death. He's being accused of something terrible. And in this Acts 26, we see him give account for the hope that he's found, the life that he's lived, how he found hope 
His life was changed and he was able to live out that hope. So join with me in reading Acts 26. And if we could stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Acts 26 verse 1 through 18. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard the voice to me, voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Lord, we thank you for this word today and we thank you for your presence here this morning. Lord, I pray over everybody in this room that they will find a hope in you, that they will be be changed, their life is changed because of it. And they will live out that hope all the day long. I pray for the person in the room that knows you the least, the person in the room that knows you the most, that they will see you, they will know you, they will worship you. Lord, hide me behind your cross so that the only thing is seen is you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So the beginning of Acts 26, Paul is sitting before the people that hold his fate in their hands. And what is the first thing that he does? What does he say when when he's being accused and being put on trial for death? He 
says, I consider myself fortunate. I consider myself blessed to be before you, King Agrippa. Now, I think about that and and how crazy that sounds, because if it were me, if I was on trial for death, I'm not sure I would say I was thankful. I was grateful to be before the people that might kill me. I think I would be doing everything I can to say, hey, listen, Agrippa, I I know that they're saying I did this, but I just want to defend my case and tell you the true story. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be some of us? Wouldn't that be our first inclination? But Paul here, he takes a heart of gratitude by saying, I'm so grateful to be before you. And as we live in, as Christians, we're supposed to have this heart of gratitude. And I want to give us three spiritual functions for gratitude in our life. The first one is that of a barometer, a spiritual function of a barometer. A barometer is a a scientific instrument that is used to measure the atmospheric pressure. And this barometer, it knows the pressure without and forecasts it um, for the people to see. So if we have the spiritual function of a barometer, we're not naive to our circumstances. We're not naive to the, the pressures that amount in our life. We know them. They just might not affect us. So we're that of a barometer. The second one is a motivator. Because sometimes life, life is trash. Sometimes life is hard and difficult and you want to give up. You want to crawl up in a ball and quit. But a life of gratitude, seeing the the light in every circumstance motivates you, gives you an eagerness to live. So we live a spiritual function of a barometer, spiritual function of a motivator, and the third one is the spiritual function of the reinforcer. So not only is the life of gratitude turning in on yourself and, and lifting up you, but it brings others into the mix. You're reinforcing the, li- the, the faith and the, the gratefulness of the lives around you. And I want to show a short little clip that it's a little silly, but it's, it's very fitting for, for this, these three spiritual functions. So let's give a watch. And six, there. And now you can all get out. How very thoughtful you are, Piglet. Good grief. Tie them together, Piglet. Can you tie a knot? I cannot. Ah, so you can knot. No, I cannot knot. Not knot? Who's there? Pooh. Pooh who? No, Pooh. Piglet, you'll need more than two knots. Not possible. Ah, so it is possible to knot those pieces. Not these pieces. Yes, not those pieces. Why not? Because it's all for naught. Oh, dear. I can't tie a knot. Oh, but there is something I can do. Don't worry, Rabbit. Piglet's very clever. I can tie a bow. See? (laughs) So in that short little clip, we have Rabbit, we have Pooh, and we have Eeyore. And, and, and Rabbit there is, is trying to figure out what to do. He's trying to, to fix the problem, but he's always seeing the problem and not the light that they have the rope. Eeyore is, is laying down and, and he's wellowing in his own self-pity. It's all for naught. But then you have Pooh Bear, and he sees the light. He sees the, the joy, the, the great circumstance that that we're going to get out of this. Everything's going to be 
okay. It's a silly illustration, but that when we live a life of gratitude, there is light around us that brings others into it. We live a life of a barometer, not naive to the, that they are in that little pit. They're, they're motivated. They have an eager, who has an eagerness to get out, an eager, eagerness to be with his, his friends. And the life of a reinforcer, he brings others into that, um, into that gratefulness. So that is exactly the posture that Paul has at the beginning of this passage. But as we get into verse 4, he begins to plead his case to Agrippa. And that's where we find our first point today in verses 4 through 8. And that is a hope found. A hope found. When we are in the midst of trial, we must recall our story of hope. We must recall our story of hope. As Paul is is beginning his defense, he starts to tell the life that he used to live. Before I met Christ, before I I was living this Christian walk, this is who I was. I was living in the strictest religious sect. These people around you, they can attest to that. I was someone that wasn't super pleasant. I I was bent towards persecuting the people around me, those that, that followed Jesus. So when we, when we examine this, we have to turn to ourselves and go, what was I like before Christ? What was the status of my heart, the status of my actions, the status of the way I lived before I met Christ? For me, it was a, a transformational experience. My life before Christ was, was nothing but inward um, Inward desires and and living out a life that was pleasing to myself, but a life of Christ, we have that life of gratefulness in the hope found. In verse 6, Paul describes what he finds and why he lives out. He goes, and now it is because of my hope, my hope in, in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today, which is a joyful expectation of eternal salvation. And it's for everybody. Verse 7 continues, saying, This is the promise of the 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. The 12 tribes means the entire nation. That this hope is for everybody. That everybody is longing for hope in their lives. They don't want to be in that empty pit. They don't want to be always in the trial, seeing the darkness. They're longing for hope, but sometimes we let our flesh get in the way. We let our own ambitions, our own Um, tendencies to to block us from seeing and living out the hope that is found in Christ. And the Jews of the the time of Paul were doing just that. In verse 8, it says, Why should any of you consider this hope, the incredible works of God? Why would you consider it uh, unable to happen? And how many times do we limit God? How many times we're in our circumstances we might be in our, our pit, and we go, I know God is good. I know God can heal, but can he heal me now? I know God is, is a relationship mender, but, but I'm too far off with that person. It can never be mended. I know God is, is great and powerful, but can he really do this in my life? When we experience the hope of Christ, we recognize the, the full nature of who God is, that, that God can and he will when we find our hope in him. When I was little, my family would often go camping. 
And this one time we were, I was eight, nine, ten years old, something like that. And we were, it was morning, it was cold, and we were trying to big the, build the biggest campfire possible. So me and my older sister were gathering up material. We were throwing leaves, throwing sticks, throwing donut boxes that, to make the flame get as big as possible. And we ventured out into the woods trying to find the perfect sticks to make this fire amazing. And as we ventured out, we lost sight of our campsite. We were completely lost. We start running around for what seemed like hours. In reality, it was probably only 45 seconds. And then all of a sudden, I look over, and I see my older sister on the ground crying. Oh, wait, actually, I was on the ground crying, and she was coming to pick me up to where we decided that we were just going to walk in one direction to get out and just keep on going until we recognize something. So that's what we did. We start walking and walking and journeying, and trekking, and then all of the sudden, we see a sign, and that sign, we recognized it, and we knew that we knew where we were, and from that sign, we found our way back to the campsite, but in our Christian journey, don't we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the woods without a purpose, not knowing where we're going. And when we run into the hope, the sign of Christ, we're led back to that place of fulfillment. We're led back to that place of of joy and peace. We find our hope in Christ. But also, and my second point today, is that our lives are changed because of it. So the second point today is life changed, found in verses 9 through 15. Paul here continues retelling this story and the the terrible things that he's done. He says in verse 9, I too was convinced that they ought, ought to do anything that was possible. Verse 10, he continues saying, and that is just what I did. On the authority of the chief priests, I put those Christians that if I cast my vote for them. Now I know I've done some some pretty bad things, but I haven't gone around killing other Christians. And Paul is confessing this and saying, this is who I was. Verse 11, it reaches its climax, saying, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them. That word obsessed, it means rage. It means anger. And Paul was obsessed and enraged because of his mission of religiosity. But are we not the same sometimes? Do we not have a a disdain for for the others in the world? For those people that, that live abundantly in sin? That might live promiscuous lifestyles? That we consider them others? We don't want any part to do with them. Think about the people in your life that live in sin that are constantly falling um, and living a lifestyle of darkness. But are we not called to to reach out our hand and and dwell with them and show them light? Think about societies in the world. Maybe it's the, the LGBTQ community where the church has completely dissociated from the people that are struggling with that. Or maybe it's in the political landscape where the Christians of the right are dissociating themselves from the Christians of the left and the, the Christians of the left are dissociating themselves from the Christians on the right. 
to where they're forgetting that there's unity and unification found in Christ. Do we not sometimes have an anger and a disdain for, for those that are walking outside of that of God? But what did Christ do? When we turn to Christ in the life that he led, was he not dwelling with the sinners, breaking bread with them? You see, it's not our job as believers to condemn or to judge, but it's to, to show the light, to embrace them as being made in the image of God, that they are God's children. And, and by casting them off, we must ask ourselves, is the sin in our life still prevalent, still eating away at us to where we're, we're hiding it and putting on a facade of life, but we can point to them and say, I'm not, at least I'm not living like that. But recognizing that we're all sinners and we're, supposed, we're called to love others and bring the hope and light of Christ to all. And this was Paul. He was living that life of rage, living that life of, of um, obsession, and in verse 12, he's, he's doing just this. He's on one of his journeys of rage when Christ encountered him. And I want to give us five truths. Five truths when we encounter God. The first one is that it consumes everything and everyone around us. As Paul was journeying to, on the Damascus road, all the people around him were consumed by the light that hit him. It wasn't just an individual consumption, but it was a communal consumption. So when we are, are radiating the light of Christ, it is consuming everyone that we encounter. When we encounter. The second truth of encountering God is that it meets you when you least expect it. The text indicates that it was noon. It was midday. The sun in the sky was at its highest point. So Paul, so the text is indicating that, that Paul wasn't sensitive to the light that might shine on him. He wasn't ready to experience this life changed, but yet Christ met him when he least expected it. The third one is that Christ meets us where we're at. He meets us where we're at. As he was journeying, what did Jesus say to him? He spoke to him in Aramaic. Now, Paul was well-versed in many a language, but Jesus spoke in his most native tongue. Sometimes we feel like, like we're too, too far. We're too away from God. We feel like, like we're not worthy to, to be encountered by Christ by what we've been doing, but, but Jesus is calling out to you and trying to reach you and meet you where you're at. So it consumes everyone around you. It meets you when you least expect it. He will meet you where you're at. And the fourth one is he knows you. When we encounter Christ, he knows us. What did he say? He called him out by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, I know you. I know your name. I know what you've done. I know your heart. And he's calling you out. By name, he knows you. He wants, to, he wants a relationship with you. Even though you might feel insignificant, even though you might feel like he doesn't know you, he is calling you out by name. When we encounter Christ, we are completely and fully known. And the fifth one is that we release control to him. We release control to him. 
at the end of this, this verse, it says, why are you kicking against the goads? The goads is, is a reference to when oxen would, would till the land, they'd be attached to a goad, and when they'd kick and fight against it, they would get nowhere. But, as, um, but when you release control and you're guided by the master, a lot is accomplished. So Jesus here is saying, why are you resisting me? Why are you holding on? Let go. Give control to me. Hope is found. Lives are changed when you release control. What part of your life that you are hiding from the people around you and hiding from God? What part of your life do you want to control everything about? I'm willing to give God that. I'm willing to to let him rule uh, this part of my life, but I want this. You see, when we're living life and and we have these these safety uh, parameters in our hearts, because people can hurt us, but those safety parameters sometimes get in the way of letting God guide us, control us, and, and lead us to where we're supposed to go. When we encounter God, we must release control to him for our lives are changed because of it. There was this man who, who lived in Rwanda and when he was a boy, he was, he was in the midst of the, the Rwandan genocide and he was on the, his front lawn when it happened. He was with his family and the Rwandan government came to, to persecute the Tutsi tribe, one that he was a part of. And when they grabbed a hold of him, they separated his older family with his younger family. And this little boy, when he was separated from his family, they put a restraining bolt on his leg to where it tore the flesh from the bone. It was just a hangling piece of meat. And he was unable to run away, or so he thought. And as he looked upon that government, as they they shot and killed his family, he did his best. He did everything he could to flee from that place. He crawled, he, he jumped on one leg, and eventually he got to the edge of the woods where he laid down and hid. For days he laid there. For weeks he, he stayed hidden as they, they laid rampage to the city before him. As he was doing this, he he figured an idea, if I just leave this country, I'll be safe. So he goes up against the river and was laying on the bank, ready to escape into freedom, into the refugee camp that lay on the other side of this river. But he realized, like, there's no way that I'm able to swim across the, the, the roaring stream in my state. And so he looked around him and he saw the, the bones and the and the bodies that had been killed. So he fastened himself a vessel out of the bones that laid before him. And he ventured across that, that river into freedom, into the refugee camp. But when the time was right, he returned back to Rwanda full of hate, full of anger. And the only thing that he wanted to do was kill the people that persecuted him, kill the people that, that killed his family. A couple years passed and he was adopted into this family at the age of 16. And this family just started mentioning their faith, started sharing the gospel message. And at first, this Rwandan boy, he, he ignored it. He turned his face. I don't need that. I have this anger inside of me. I just want to get in the military so I can kill more people. But eventually, 
as that gospel message kept getting spoken over his life, as the light that radiated out of his adopted family was becoming real to him, he turned his ear, he opened his heart, he released control, and it changed his life. That boy is now a man, and he is studying in seminary, waiting and preparing himself to go back into the nation of Rwanda to share the gospel of the hope that he found to the people that killed his family. Instead of wanting to kill them, now he wants to reach out his hand of hope and say, this is what Christ has done in my life. You're the people that killed my family, that that tortured me, but instead of hatred, I want to give you hope. I want to show you the hope that I found and the life that was changed in me because of it. Hope is found in Christ. It is here today. Our lives are changed because of it when we release control to him. And the third point today found in verses 16 through 18 is that we have a hope lived. A hope lived. I want to present us three postures in living out hope. Three postures that that Paul gives us. The first one is that we stand. That when we are living out hope, we stand. The text says, Jesus cried out, Paul, get up. Stand on your feet. There's no need to be laying down. You have a mission. You have a goal. Stand up. And this same word for stand is found in Psalm chapter 1, where it says, Blessed are the ones that do not walk in the step of the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take. But we stand like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. The the leaves do not wither. When we live out hope, we stand on truth. We stand on the the light and the hope of Christ. The second one is that we serve. We serve. Christ calls out and says, Paul, I'm going to appoint you as a servant, as a minister to witness to others of what you have heard. And it begs us to ask the question, who do we serve? Who are the people that we serve in our life. If we're called to make disciples of all nations and we're called to disciple, and if discipleship is service, who are you discipling? Who are the people in your life that you are pouring into? When I asked myself this, or when I had this question asked to myself my freshman year of college, I didn't know how to answer it. I went, I don't know who I'm discipling. I don't know who I'm serving. I'm just kind of meandering around in my life. But when we live out this hope, when we're living in the fullness of what Christ has for us, we serve and we disciple and pour in to others. The greatest among you will be your servant. So we stand, we serve, and the third one is we give light to others. A light that consumes all. The text says, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. So let us live out our life with hope, with light, giving that to others, that when we encounter those that don't know the Lord, it is attractive, that there's a a desire to be like him. When they see you, when they see me, they don't see the person of, of, of Christian but they see the person of Christ. So we stand on truth. We stand on the Lord. We serve 
others and we give light to those around us. And when I think about these three principles, I think about one of my buddies in college. When I was entering into my freshman year, I was, didn't know what to do. I didn't know how college was going to go. And, and one of my buddies was a year older, and his job he was a chaplain of a dorm, and his job was guiding and walking alongside me in my first year as a college student. But that second semester of my freshman year, as he was walking alongside me, tragedy struck his life. His dad unexpectedly died and his life was turned upside down. He didn't know what was happening. And I found myself wanting to go, pour into him, comfort him, and and help him through this time. And when I was there with him, I found that it wasn't me giving him light. It wasn't me giving him hope, but instead he was giving hope and light to me. Two years later, his senior year, my junior year, I'm the chaplain. I'm walking freshmen through their first year um, in college, and he is the leader of the chaplain, still walking alongside me when tragedy struck again. Not only did his father die, but his mother died unexpectedly. The two people in his life that poured and gave life to him were gone from his life, and once again, I went and embraced him to give him hope, to give him light, to support him in that time of need. But what did I find? found that the hope and light in his eyes ministered to me, that through the experience of of walking alongside him in those tragedies, the light of Christ was so prevalent, it was so immense, that in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his darkness, in the lowest point of his life, he was still giving hope and light to others. See, Paul here, he's on trial for death. He's shackled, he's chained. But what's his posture? Gratefulness, thankfulness. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, Rejoice always. He's saying that from the confines of jail. Rejoice always, I will say it again, rejoice. We can sit in the midst of our trial and we can have self-pity and we can have self-doubt that we're not sure if we're going to get on the other side of this. Or we can have the posture of saying, God, you're good. You give hope. You give light and life. I will rejoice because I still have air in my lungs. My heart is still beating. I have a place to lay my head. Rejoice always. I will say it again. Rejoice because the Lord our God, we can praise him in all circumstances. When I'm on the mountaintop, I can shout his name. When I'm in the lowest valley, he is still the same. So Lord, we we come before you today humbled by your presence, humbled by your word to us, that you know us, you pursue us, and you give hope to us. You would allow us to, to find our hope in you so that our lives will be changed and we can live out that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I don't know where y'all are at. You might be living in a time of, of jubilation where everything's going right in your life 
we can give hope and light to others in those situations. But you might be in a, a point of turmoil. Everything seems to be turning upside down and Christ is waiting for you in the midst of those trials. So at this time, I want to invite you to stand. And, to, and Charlie always says, movement matters. Movement matters. Move towards hope. Move towards finding hope so that your lives will be changed and we can live out the hope that is present today. We have communion to my left and to my right. I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.